0: In studying the book of James, uh, one tends to face one of two difficulties or two problems. The first is understanding what James is saying. I think in some ways this is the lesser of the two difficulties. The second is understanding why James said what he's saying at that point in the letter, in this point in his sermon. And because of the second difficulty, commentators take usually one of two routes, either as they see the book as a series of unconnected topics, sort of a stream of consciousness type of thing, or they try to read between the lines to find some, some type of development, some line of development. Today our text is James 4 verses 11 through 17. And I think what James is saying is fairly obvious. Okay, so that's, I don't think that's the problem. Um, The problem is that the topics seem unrelated, and we're not quite sure, or one might not be quite sure why he puts them here at this point, but there are themes that run through them, and not only these verses, but also the first part of chapter 5, which the Lord willing we will look at next week. There are two themes that run through them. The first is human weakness and insecurity the weakness of human unworthiness. We have a dreadful lack of self-knowledge. We don't know who we are. And secondly, just the reality of the frailty of being a human being. The changes, the chances that come in life. We are, as we will see in a few moments, a mist, a vapor something that is temporary. This is true of all human security. Our situations fluctuate with changing circumstances. And we need to admit that. The second thing that runs through it is divine greatness and strength. In contrast to our weakness um, and our insecurity, we have a God who is great and is powerful. As we will see in verse number 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. In verse number 15, if it is the Lord's will, and then next week in chapter five, verse four, that the voices of the workers cry out to the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Still, we might say, what does this have to do? Why is this here at this point in the sermon? As we've seen, The book of James is a sermon. It's in the form of a letter, but it is, in fact, a sermon written by James to members who have moved away. Persecution came on the church in Jerusalem and many people moved away. And so now James is writing uh, to correct what he perceives to be uh, a great fault uh, in their Christian lives. There are three points to the sermon. The first is we are to care for those in need. Secondly, we are to control our tongue. And now we're at the third point, we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And James deals with this by contrasting heavenly wisdom with earthly wisdom. The distinctions between the two aren't always immediately obvious, but their characteristics and the results reveal them for what they are. Earthly wisdom is marked by envy and selfish ambition it results in disorder of every kind and evil heavenly wisdom on the other hand which comes from god is pure peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere one might then ask why in the world would someone embrace earthly wisdom rather than heavenly wisdom well james traces it back to its root it is in fact a dysfunctional, a wrong relationship with God. We saw this last week. James describes this in two ways, marital unfaithfulness and political unfaithfulness. Both are entered into by covenant, but then, in fact, one party may, in fact, say, no, I'm not going to continue to keep this agreement. This unfaithfulness is a result of something we've seen throughout James, but he begins in chapter one. It's trying to live in two worlds at one time. It's being double-minded. You have one foot in the world and seemingly one foot in God's kingdom. That's just not doable. So, people want and we are guilty of wanting to have heavenly wisdom, we pray for it and we don't get it because we want it for ourselves. We want to win whatever situation it is. At the same time, we are very practical, very pragmatic, and we pursue earthly wisdom. And this is because we've been polluted by the world. And James's third point is we are to keep ourselves from being polluted. When we do this, what we are doing is living as though we have no need of God, most of the time. And then when we do turn to God, we see him as a resource, not as our Father, not as someone who loves us, but as a resource. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In the midst of the hard part of the sermon, if you wish, where, if this is being read to a congregation, everyone is looking down, James writes these amazing and wonderful words, but he gives us more grace. That is to say, God is always tirelessly on our side. He always has more grace at hand to give us. He always has more and more yet to give. God's grace is sufficient. It is more than sufficient. But we have a responsibility. We can't simply say, well, God will give grace and, you know, I'm I'm doing okay. The same God who says, here is my grace, receive my grace, is the same God who gives us commands and tells us, this is the way, walk in it. These are the things you are to do. This shouldn't surprise us. I think it does surprise many Christians. Um, Redemption comes first, okay, and then obedience is to follow. We're using the paradigm of the Exodus. God rescues his people out of slavery and then he takes them to Sinai and he gives them the commandments telling them how to live. If you think about it, Moses didn't go to Egypt and talk to the Israelites and say, listen, I've been to Sinai. God's given me these Ten Commandments. And if you guys really work hard and keep these commandments, God might get us out of here. No. God delivered his people graciously. And then he said, how did the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay? This is how you're supposed to live. And so it is grace and then obedience. He gives more grace. But we are to obey. And what James does is he then gives us in verses 7 to 10, we saw this last week, 10 commands. Um, They're written as 10 imperatives. These are not optional things to do. These are what we must do. God has given us grace. Now these are the things that we are supposed to do. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. As I said last week, this is the language of the Old Testament, and James is the first book written in the New Testament. The idea of drawing near to God is speaking of worship. I think we would be, well, we're inclined to think God should draw to us and pull us to Himself, and in a real sense He does. But we draw near to Him in worship. We're to wash our hands. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Um, These are outward acts washing your hands, purify your hearts, an inward act. It's the act of wrongdoing, the thoughts of wrongdoing. Again, the language is very much that of the Old Testament. The priests were to wash their hands, ritually, as they would go in and offer sacrifices. Uh, The psalmist writes in Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. James doesn't quote this. We, we, we might have liked, you know, there been a footnote or something to say, oh, by the way, you know, Psalm 24. But he does something really startling. What does he say? Wash your hands, you sinners. Well, that's, that's a bit much. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is who we are. So then the next commands have to do with repentance. Grieve inwardly, mourn outwardly, wail outwardly. To grieve over one's sin apparently is not enough. James calls for outward expressions of repentance. As I mentioned last week, it had been suggested before that during our prayer of confession, Beforehand, and we have it written down that we should give out dust and ashes. You know that we would put our there be a visible. You know, because otherwise we're just reading words. And, and do we in fact mean what we are saying? The ninth command is change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We are not to laugh and think, "Oh, that silly thing I did, that sin I committed." Ha! <laughs> no, we are to mourn over our sins and our double-mindedness. And then the 10th one is humble yourselves before the Lord. It is to recognize our spiritual poverty. The Beatitudes begin with blessed are the poor in spirit. We're given the promise, if we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. In verse number 6, he said he gives more grace. Now we find that he will lift us up. I find it interesting. There's a parallel. This is the 10th command that James gives us. But it is, in fact, the foundation for all the others. We cannot submit to God if we are not humble. I would say we cannot resist the devil if we are not humble. We may imagine that we can, uh, but we cannot. All the things that he has called us to do, in fact, requires that we humble ourselves. In the same way, if you look at the Ten Commandments, it is the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. That is the foundation for all the others. Before you break any of the first nine commandments, you break the tenth. You covet. You want another God besides the true God. Okay? You don't want to honor your parents. You want something that somebody else has. It all begins with coveting. Um, I encourage you to go to the book of Romans, chapter 7. And of all the commandments that, Je- that Paul talks about... The one that made him aware of sin, the tenth commandment. So here James writes, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will humble you, he will lift you up. Now he transitions to three topics, which, as I said at the beginning, might seem unrelated. he seems to have sort of made a right turn here, or a left turn, whatever you wish. Um, it's like, why is he dealing with these three topics? One deals with slandering others. The other is presumption about the future. And then again, Lord willing, next week, the misuse of wealth. I would argue that they are here because they are aspects that show the need for humility. And when we do not humble ourselves before God, we will find ourselves judging and slandering others. We will find ourselves being presumptuous about the future, and we will find ourselves misusing wealth. If you remember at the beginning of James chapter 4, he dealt with the issue of persistent self interest. And the language he uses, wars and fightings, it's a determination to win. Again, I mentioned this last week. Someone has said about social media, it's not about what is true or what is false, it's about who's winning. That has crept into the church. We have a desire to have, we want to possess, we have a desire not to share. In our text, what we find is, in fact, three symptoms of this self-centeredness, three symptoms of not humbling ourselves before God. Symptoms that I would argue do not arouse any suspicion to us because we think that's just the way people are. It's just the way people are. That's precisely the point. Do not be polluted by the world. James is trying to make the point, the arrogance that would denigrate others and the presumptuousness that would say, I am the master of my life and the covetousness that hoards wealth and defrauds others this shows a self-centeredness and the absence of humility So let's get to our text, verses 11 and 12 Brothers, do not slander one another Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? As we've seen throughout the book, James begins gently. Brothers. And remember that his purpose in this sermon is not to inform. He's dealing with people who know the Old Testament. He's dealing with people who have heard the teachings of the apostles and possibly even the person of Jesus himself. But now they've been scattered around the Mediterranean basin because of persecution. So he's not trying to inform them. They already know this. The problem is they're not doing what they should be doing based on what they know. And so we have the imperatives, 50 imperatives in 104 verses. He is commanding them, he is urging them, he is encouraging them. And yet there is this tender pastoral tone. Brothers. He doesn't talk about you guys. He's brothers. You are my brothers. Do not slander one another. The King James has, do not, or speak not evil of one another. Just a side note here, Um, this doesn't mean that we're lying about somebody. We in fact may be speaking the truth about someone, but rather than keeping it to ourselves, we choose to slander them and to speak evil of that person. We don't have to lie in order to defame. Just because something is true doesn't give us the right to say it, to broadcast it. Whether it is true or false, when we do this, we present ourselves as superior to the person that we are slandering or speaking about. We're talking down about them, talking down to them. We are slandering them. And James says, don't do this. And it isn't because it's a breach of truth. Because maybe it's not. Maybe you, in fact, are telling the truth. And it's not because it is a breach of love. But it is, it is that. We are told that love covers a multitude of sins. He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So it isn't primarily, or James' point here is not about love. It is a breach of humility. If in fact we humble ourselves before God, we are in no superior position from which to talk down to other people. James fleshes this out along four lines. First of all, how we are to regard one another. We are brothers and neighbors. Brotherliness is emphasized by repetition And sadly, the NIV has dropped one of the brothers here. Uh, Brothers is actually used three times in verse number 11. Let me read from the ESV. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So the focus is your brother, the people of God, the church. And then your neighbor is put at the end of verse number 12. I would almost argue, though, that if verse number 12 wasn't there, we would still know that we are not to slander our neighbors. Because he, in fact, says that we are, to, we are not to judge the law, we're not to put ourselves above the law. We are under God's law. And what is the law? We are to love the Lord our God, and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And if in fact, I humble myself before God's law, then in fact, I must love my neighbor. I cannot slander my neighbor. Defamation does not belong in these relationships at all. So how we regard the law? This is the second thing. He gives us his royal law. We saw in chapter two, that we should love our neighbors. And when we turn away from the path of love, we go from we go for, defamation, criticism, and denigration. Outwardly, we speak against our neighbors. In reality, we are speaking against the law. But the point, again, yes, a second, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. The point is, why are we not loving our neighbor? Because we have not humbled ourselves. We think we're better than someone else and that we have a right to slander them. James makes a very strong point here. Somehow we have put ourselves above the law. We judge the law. By the way, that is so common today, even in the church, sadly, where people think, yeah, well, that, you know, those are olden times, you know, and that was a you know, pre-modern time, and so these things are really not applicable today. No, we are not to stand in judgment on the law. We are to obey what it says. What we come to see the law is not expressing God's highest expression of who we are as human beings. The Ten Commandments tell us who God is, yes, but they tell us who we are as well. And God who made us and who sustains us says, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to act. The third thing is, how are we to regard God? When we disobey the law, are we not in fact replacing God? We are not to slander, but when we choose to slander, we are saying, basically, I know better than God. God says, don't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. God's law is not some arbitrary list of rules that we have to follow. It is, in fact, an expression of who we are supposed to be as His people. We are made in His image. He made us. He knows what is best for us. But if we choose to go a different path, we are saying, basically, I know better than God. When we disobey, we contradict him, and we replace him as the final authority in our lives. But the fourth thing, and this will lead into the next point, how, how are we to regard ourselves? But who are you, James asked this is the point to which his whole argument has been directed if we take the path of heavenly wisdom then we must humble ourselves and see ourselves as we should it's not like oh I'm a terrible terrible person somehow flagellate ourselves. no this is who I am I am a sinner and it will be reflected in the way that we treat other people when we obey God's law you may remember James calls it God's royal law, the law of the kingdom in chapter 2, then we will value others as we should. We accept God's law for what it is. We acknowledge God as the supreme authority, and we acknowledge that we are not the supreme authority. But if we embrace earthly wisdom, the way of the world, then we might wonder, what's wrong with telling the truth about someone What's wrong with letting the situation dictate your response? What's wrong with letting your conscience be your guide? What's wrong with, for standing up for yourself? Because if you don't, who will? Do I need to belabor this point in the face of today's culture? There are those who bemoan the lack of civility in public discourse today long for the olden days when people were more polite and more civil. Um, Is it a lack of civility? I would suggest it is a lack of humility that ends up as a lack of civility. The church is the pilot project. This is where it begins. This is where we learn, we put into practice, We treat each other with love, and then we go out into the world, and we are lights in the world of darkness. But if we don't do it here in the church, what do we have to offer the world? I remember it was said back in the 60s that the place where segregation was seen the most strongly, vividly, was in the church you had white churches, you had black churches. What do we have to say to the world about being equal in the eyes of God? James now turns to the second danger, that is being presumptuous. Verses 13 through 17 comes from a wrong understanding of ourselves in relationship to our ambitions. And as with defamation, which is, it begins in the heart, okay? Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Several assumptions that that guide this presumptuousness are seen here. First of all, the time is on our side. It's at our disposal. It's a commodity. Today or tomorrow we're going to do this or that. And secondly, the only issues that come into play, at least with this presumptuous view, is personal ability. Do I in fact have the acuity, the the understanding of business to successfully carry on a business? And will I in fact make money? As James speaks of this presumptuousness, it touches life, the presumption that we can continue to live as long as we want in the way that we want, and it touches choice. I get to choose. I get to do what I want. And it touches ability, the presumption that we will succeed if we want. We can do it. It's the American spirit. It's been translated, si se puede, yes we can. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, from the poem Invictus. Again, this is so natural and ordinary to us, which is exactly the point that James is trying to make. For us in this culture, it's the American way, it's the can-do spirit that seems to define us as a people. No matter our ethnicity, this, this mentality of it's the American way, we can do it but it is earthly wisdom and it shows a lack of humility. And as James exposes this flaw of presumptuousness, he exposes something that we may may have failed to recognize. That is, we speak to ourselves as if life were our right. A word that is thrown around a bit today, it is our right. As, and it's also as though our choice is the only determining factor as to whether or not something will happen. It is as if we ourselves are all that is needed to make sense of things, and to be successful. And as if making money, doing well, were life's sole objective. I think it would be helpful at this point to remember to whom James is writing. The church was in Jerusalem, James was the head of the church, persecution came, and people left. Who left? The people who had money to get out of town. If you didn't have money, leaving Jerusalem was not an option. Persecution is not fun, but if you don't have money, you can't leave town. And you will remember uh, all the passages we usually hear in stewardship conferences about giving. Paul is actually talking about giving to the poor in Jerusalem. And why are they poor in Jerusalem? Because they couldn't get out of town. They couldn't leave. So James is writing to people who have some financial wherewithal. They were able to leave Judea. They were able to leave Palestine. They were able to move elsewhere across the Mediterranean basin. They are scattered among the nations, he says at the beginning of his sermon. So, one could argue that they do have a certain business sense, that they, they, they have an understanding of how to make money. They're good planners, they're good business people, but in the process, they may in fact have lost humility. I want to be clear about something. Is James condemning planning? No. Is he condemning ambition? Not at all. Is he opposed to setting goals? No. Is he opposed to making money? The answer to each of these is no. These activities in and of themselves are not wrong. We saw this in the series, several series actually, on vocation, on ambition, and on money. there's nothing wrong with making plans, but plans don't always turn out the way that they should. So Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 15 of his plans. By the way, they didn't, it didn't work out. The thing he planned to do, it didn't happen. Okay. But what we find in Paul is in fact an attitude that if it is the Lord's will, then this is what will happen. I will come and visit you and Rome. We may set goals. Paul had goals. He didn't reach them all. When we went through the matter of calling or vocation, we saw that ambition is in fact a part of what it means to be human and not a sinful part. It is something that drives us. It is something that God has given us. But if we do not have humility, then all of a sudden we're on our own line. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over this place, I'm going to set up a business, and we're going to make money, we're going to do really well. And James tells his readers, this is not what they should think. What James condemns is the, presumptuous, at, the presumptive attitude that is present. He is not rebuking any type of planning for the future, but rather that which comes from human arrogance, as though we know what is going to happen tomorrow. Forget tomorrow, today. As though we have that inside story. So in verse number 16, as it is, you boast and brag. So it isn't just, yes, we're going to go over here and set up a business, but we're going to kill it. We're going to make a killing. We're going to make a lot of money. You boast and you brag, and such boasting is evil. So how do we avoid this? After all, we are Americans, this is the American way. We have the can-do spirit. How do we avoid this? Well, James reminds his readers and of us of three fundamental truths. First of all, we are ignorant. We are ignorant of the future. We do not know what will happen tomorrow. Proverbs 27, 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You may notice that in the midst of planning out one's activities, which involve traveling and spending time, he mentions a year, so it's not just tomorrow, it's like a year. We've got this, this plan for a year. We may have forgotten that we don't know what will happen here, now, today, or tomorrow. We are ignorant of the future. Secondly, we are frail, we are fragile. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The idea of the mist is, in fact, a metaphor. What we find in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms, rather than mist, is the word breath. Psalm 39, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Selah. Psalm 62 Low born men are but a breath. The high born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Psalm 144 Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. We want to be careful here. James is saying that we are temporary. He is not saying that we are insignificant. We are, after all, made in the image of God. Christ gave His life that we might have life. He came to redeem us. But we're here temporarily. This is, if you wish, the beginning of the story. This isn't the beginning, middle, and end. This is the beginning of the story. We're here temporarily, we should acknowledge that. In light of that, how can you presume to know what will happen in a year? But it isn't simply enough to acknowledge that we are temporary, that life is, in fact, transitory and uncertain. There's one more truth we need to acknowledge, and that is that we are completely and totally dependent upon God. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It's a conviction found throughout Scripture. We hear it in the garden as Jesus prayed, Yet not as I will, but as you will, may your will be done. Paul said to the Ephesian believers, we find this in Acts 18, as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. This is the heart of the matter. But it's a passage, I think, that's misunderstood. Um, He is not trying to banish planning, as I've said. In fact, if you look at the two verses together, he's saying exactly the same thing except now it is if it is the Lord's will there is a humility there is a reality that in fact we are totally dependent upon God. John Calvin pointed out that believers in scriptures don't always state this condition if it is the Lord's will when they plan for the future what was important was not the verbalization of saying if it is the God's will but the principle that they had fixed in their minds it it directed everything that they thought and that they did. There was a recognition that we are totally dependent upon God. Because otherwise, if it is the Lord's will, if it's God's will, it becomes a mantra. It's something we say. We don't really mean it. We just say it, because it sounds really religious. Um, no. There is to be a hard attitude of humility that says, if it is the Lord's will. By the way, um, if it is the Lord's will, what? Okay, it isn't simply enough to say, if it is the Lord's will. Remember the story I have told you of Norman Vincent Peale, who every morning would sit up in bed and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And the question is, what do you believe? And if we say, if it is the Lord's will, if it is the Lord's will, what? There has to be something there. James is not encouraging us to be passive. He's not telling us to be fatalistic about life. He's calling us to walk in the path of humility. We are ignorant of the future. We are frail creatures. And we are dependent upon God. If you think about it, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, We still would not know the future. They did not know the future. And they would still be dependent upon God, the Creator. So James says, so this is what you ought to say. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But instead, people boast and brag. We're number one. We're going to kill this. We're going to make a lot of money. In a way, we forget how frail we are. This is evil. This is wrong. And then we come to verse number 17, which I think could be the key to this entire sermon. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, but doesn't do it, sins. For some, this verse seems out of place. How does it connect with what James has just said? After all, he moves from the particular verse number 16 to the general of verse number 17, from the evil of the sin of arrogance to the principle of the sin of omission. The whole idea of sinning by default but never, has never been given a more striking expression. This is what you should do. And if you know this is what you should do, and you say to yourself, this is what I should do, but you don't do it, then in fact, You sin. see, usually we think of sin as something that we do. We break God's law. But it is earthly wisdom. You see, wisdom is the ability to connect the principle to the application. Which means, knowing means doing. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man built his, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice is like when wise man who built his house on a rock. A foolish person hears, but does not do, and the house collapses. We live in the information age, as someone has said, never has so much been known, and at the same time never has so little been done automatically about what is known. Objectivity is pushed up as the highest virtue. So much so that we become non-committal, being objective, consequence-free and value-free. And the gap between knowing and doing gets wider every day. Why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons. One is there's an ethical crisis. There's ethical confusion everywhere. In, in, in terms of principles, people don't know what they should do about something they know something, but they don 't know what, in fact, should I do? I, I learned this piece of information, but what in fact should I do? there's also psychological factors there 's so much to know. How do you know what to do about what you hear it 's been likened to a thermostat, you know, at a certain point when the temperature reaches in the room reaches a point the heater shuts off, or the air conditioner shuts off. We get in so much information that at a certain point we shut off emotionally. And just, we know the information, we simply don't do anything about it. There is the famous saying from Stalin, Joseph Stalin, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. When one person dies, we can do something about it. When we hear about a million people dying, what do we do? There's also a philosophical component to this. We live in a time in which a fact is a fact is a fact. Knowledge is seen as objective, detached, value-free. Belief is different. If you believe something, which is seen almost as non-rational, then that's different. But yeah, if you know something, You have that piece of information and that's good. The nature of institutional structures in an age of specialization. For one specialist, there's no wider sense of the whole. We just know our our little part of the puzzle. So when James says, if you know the good you ought to do, and you don't do it, we really need to take this to heart. If we fail to act according to what we know, what are we doing? We are sinning. It is sin. He doesn't pull any punches here. And, and what is it, by the way, that we are supposed to know? You, you know the good you ought to do. What is that? It's the path of humility. Because humility, the 10th command that he gives, is the foundation for everything else. Everything else flows from humility. And when we don't have that humility, then we've gone down a different path. Where we begin is with humility. Just as in the Sermon on the Mount, we begin with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Until Jesus comes back, we will always be poor in spirit. We are always to humble ourselves. This is heavenly wisdom. This is acknowledging who we are and living our lives in that light. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's been said that we live in a time where it is more difficult to believe than ever. I think as believers, we should set that aside and say we live in a time in which it is harder to be humble than ever. We are encouraged to think more of ourselves than we should. We are told that we can achieve anything that we want. We can be anyone that we want. And as your people, as your church, We might think that's just the way things are, which is precisely the point James is trying to make. We are not to follow earthly wisdom. All these centuries later, what James wrote still is true. It still pierces our hearts. But may that not be the end of it. May we put into practice. May we be marked by humility. And As James said earlier, not be hearers of the word only, but doers. I thank you for bringing us together on this day. To worship together. To learn from your work. On this day, we give thanks for Tess's birthday, Oscar's last Sunday, Andy's is coming up. Wonderful reminders, markers of your faithfulness and your providence, your love and your care. We pray for Andy and Jesse as they travel, you would give them safety for Tom and Anne as well. We're grateful they can be with us today. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And as we walk through the world, which seeks to pollute us, and sadly it has an ally in our sinful hearts, may we have a sense of your presence, a sense of your calling, and may we be marked by humility. Thank you for loving us and for tirelessly working on our behalf. And I pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.